Hello. Welcome to episode two. I'm still here. I'm in my cabin, chilling, living out my days. I often think about how I got here, how we all got here. It was wild. I'm glad it didn't end the world, and I'm glad we didn't actually have a war. But we knew things were going really badly. I mean, obviously, when Trump got elected, you know, that should have been the big red flag. But it had started before him. We all know that. The sort of dichotomization of everyone, the division, our inability to grasp nuance, to understand truth, to grasp our own reality. And then it really got bad when social media metastasized and the algorithm became sentient and took over and we, we couldn't control it anymore. So they had to delete Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. They had to delete all of it. Um, it was just too much. And then they enacted the National We Have to Talk to Each Other Enforcement Act, and that was a huge failure. People were not ready to talk to each other. They were unable to hear the other side. You know, back when Trump was elected, everyone was like, we have to talk to each other. We have to get offline. We have to see each other face to face. You got to sit down with your racist uncle and you got to make him not racist, you know. And I tried. I tried. I, I rounded up every racist I knew. And I looked him in the eye and I said, what's your deal, man? And they couldn't hear me. Um, there was no arguing. You know, it's like what I always say about the abortion debate, you know. I thought I'd bring that up just to kind of lighten the mood. But um, the abortion debate. I always think the abortion debate is a perfect example of how things were going to be heading in this direction. In the abortion debate, I don't even want to use the word debate because it's impossible to have a debate with someone who, when, when you both disagree fundamentally on the terms of the debate. So with abortion, the ultimate kernel of it and this is something that, um, you know, anti-abortionists have trouble even admitting to. The, the kernel of the debate is, when do you think life begins? That is the kernel of it. That's the crux of it. If you think life begins at conception, then yes. If you, if you truly believe that's a life, a human life, then I can see why you would think that was murder and that you would think it was horrible. But other people don't believe that life begins at conception. But that's the problem. The anti-abortion side is like, no, this is not a question of personal belief. This is fact. This is science. This is truth. Life begins at conception. You can look it up in a science book. And it's like, well, actually, science does not agree on when life begins. Um, and what are we talking about when we say life? Are you talking about uh, cells in a Petri dish that can move? Is that life? Well, then... You know, is that human life? That, see, that's another thing. What's human life versus just life? What's con human consciousness? All those, like, really grand questions. But the, the, the other side, um, some people, not there's obviously, a, that's the other thing, is it's not just one, it's a, not just a two-sided debate. There's actually many layers and many colors to it. There's a whole spectrum of feelings on it. Um, but, of course, the two extremes are the loudest. Um, but that the, anti, the extreme anti-abortionist side, they cannot even admit that it's a matter of personal belief, that it's a matter of 
faith in some ways. Um, and because we cannot even agree on that, we can't even go past that point of discussion. It's impossible to talk to someone who is like, well, you're murdering someone. And it's like, well, no, actually, oh, it's just so, you know, it's just, it just unravels. So anyway, that's a perfect example of what happened. And when they, when they enacted the, the National We Have to Talk to Each Other Enforcement Act, you know, they tried to force people and we had to go to the, you know, go and have these conversations. And it just, it didn't work. It all fell apart. So then they passed another one, which of course was the uh, APSA, the American Polarization Solution Act, which then entered us into America Too, which America Too, they've said, has supposed to be temporary, but it's been years now. And it, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere yet. Um, but anyway, after the American Polarization Solution Act, they made everybody go live in their designated bubble zones, the DBZs. And of course, that just, you know, that was crazy in itself. And But it seems to be working as a stopgap right now. It didn't work for me. And maybe I'll get into all the different DBZs I tried out um, in some future episodes. But yeah, it didn't work out. And uh yeah, you know, now we're we're living in this social media-less world. Google is down. Everything's sort of like scattered. It's just harder to f- keep in touch with people now that we don't have the same, you know, we don't have email and we don't have, you know, it's just, you know, it used to be so lazy, you know, like Facebook. You just relied on Facebook to tell you what was going on in your friends' lives, you know. And then you're like, oh, man, Jim died. Huh. Bye, Jim. You know, like, you know, you, you just relied on Facebook, you know. Um, but now it, it takes a lot more effort, and you really know who your friends are, if you have any at all. Um, for me, I think I still have a few out there. It's very distant, though. And uh, sometimes it really sucks. And I find myself talking to a damn frog out front of the cabin. And... And the frog jumps away, and I can't get a hold of him, and, you know, I have to just wait for him to come back. Sucks. But at other times, it's great, because I don't have to hear anybody's guff, you know? I never really belonged anywhere to begin with. I felt that in America 1. And then when America 2 started, it just was like a a constant, are you, you know, remember that old book? or cartoon, Are You My Mother? It's one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life. It's like this little duck that lost his mom, and he's, like, going around asking all these different birds, and, like, at one point it's a fake, like a wooden bird. He's like, Are You My Mother? And it, like, hits him in the head, and it's really scary. It's just so awful. It feels like when you're little and you're lost in the department store or the grocery store and you can't find your mom. One time I, I couldn't find my mom in a department store and I went, Mommy! And all these other women turned their heads because they were like, maybe that's my child. And none of them were my mom. And it felt like a nightmare. It felt like a horror movie. Like when all these ladies' heads turned and they were all strange faces, it was very scary. Of course, I found my mom eventually. But that was kind of how I felt going around to the different DBZs. It was like, are you my home? Are you my forever home? And none of them really worked out. Um, so I applied to the federal loaner program, and here I am. It's a privilege to be here. Um, it's hard to get in. You do really have to prove that you are an act, uh, a total spaz that other people don't want around. You have to get a lot of, I would call them anti-references, of people you know, saying, please accept her. We don't want her here. She's so obnoxious. Please. So you know, on one hand, it's a rejection. But on the other hand, 
<laughs> I got in, and that feels like an acceptance, you know? I finally got into something. I finally belong somewhere. I belong in my cabin in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in southern Virginia. Um, <clears throat> and I grew up in Virginia, so it's great to be here. I'm glad I got into this one. There are some really shitty uh, loner zones. You know, each, each cabin is distance apart enough where you really don't interact with anyone. You're not allowed to go past your boundary. But, uh, you know, I think I have about, I don't know, five square miles around me. That's a lot of land. That is. So think about how elite I am for getting in, okay? <laughs> I'm pretty awesome. So my, I, I want to do my favorite um, America One memory today. Um, I was thinking about back when I was writing my first book. You know, I wrote many, many books after that. They were all bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers, um, all made into TV shows and movies, very successful. Um, uh, very, 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 very successful. But um, when I was working on the first one, you know, it was scary and it was memoir and I had to dig into my memories for good stories and things. So I got out all my diaries from when I was growing up and I was searching through them. And um, thank God I got to bring some of the diaries to the cabin. I kept them. Um, and I wanted to read one memory because this is a, like a early America One memory. This is like, you know, from my childhood when, you know, things... We're starting to go awry, but we didn't realize it yet. But at the time, I was only 14. This is 1992. And uh, my, my diary was very focused on two things, God and boys. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple excerpts. Um, August 10th, 1992. Dear God, today has been, all caps, perfect. Bible study was good. We're getting pretty close. I don't know what that means. We're getting close to what? Finding you? Nirvana? Total commitment to God? <laughs> Bible study was good. We're getting pretty close. To figuring out the Bible? I'm not sure I totally understand here. Um, anyway, we did our lobster dance slash handshake. Fun. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> So apparently at Bible study, we were not only getting close to figuring, unlocking the secrets of the universe, but we were also doing something called a lobster dance slash handshake, which sounds very fun. I have to admit, I'd love to do that now. Um, I like John, a dude who kissed me on the cheek because I said kiss my butt. Well, I think I like him. Okay, so let's break this down. I am bragging that I got a guy to kiss me on the cheek, but let's talk about how I got him to kiss me on the cheek, which I'm sure I did not expect. I said, kiss my butt. And then he kissed me on the cheek, which was his way of saying, your face is a butt. And so I turned that into me liking him. Um, the man just insulted me. I mean, that's like, a he basically called me an ass face and then I'm like, oh, I think I like him. I don't know if he likes me or not. Uh, pretty sure he doesn't, Schaefer. Or he does, because back in those days, when you were 14 years old, being cruel to one another was how you, I guess, communicated that you liked someone. Which, as we know, landed us in the Me Too movement years later. Okay? When we were younger, we pulled a girl's hair. We said, kiss my butt. 
What'd you think was going to happen? Later on, that guy was going to grow up and you were going to allow him to assault you. That's victim blaming 101, y'all. Anyway, (laughs) I don't know what I just said. All right, let's keep reading. I'm having so much fun here. I love you so much. I'm I'm talking to God right now. I love you so much. I realized that when we watched Secret Ambition. Okay. So just so you all know, Secret Ambition is a music video. Well, it's a song, but also there's a music video that they would show to us. I guess I'm at church camp. I'm realizing this is set at church camp. Um, Not far from here, actually. I went to church camp in Asheville, North Carolina every summer, and it was awesome. Um, Secret Ambition is a song by the Christian rock musician Michael W. Smith. Michael W. Smith was most famous for his song, uh, Friends of Friends Forever, If the Lord's the Lord of Them. I think he sang, a, he at least sang a version of that th- song that went popular, but he also sang the very popular, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. It's a great song. I could do it. Uh, I could do it in sign language too. Um, anyway, Secret Ambition is an extremely violent video where they show Jesus being beaten and tortured and crucified, and then Michael W. Smith is like dancing around in circles in a desert-like location. Um, classic, you know, old music video where they would cut back and forth between a more cinematic interpretation of the song and then the musician singing it in some weird setting. <laughs> that was what music videos used to be. It would be like, here's a crazy scene, and now here's the musician like in a studio by himself in black and white, singing, lip-syncing the song. Secret Ambition was this video that they used to show us uh, you know, what happened to Jesus and how fucked up it was, and you better be fucking sorry. You know? He, look at how look at him bleeding. He's an innocent. He didn't do anything. He was God, and we killed him. He was the son of God. He was baby Jesus. How could you do this with your sins? Um, That's kind of what it felt like. It was very dramatic. People, you know, I would start crying. Everyone would rededicate their lives to Christ. It was very, very, very uh, um, intense. Um, Anyway, I love you so much. I realized that when we watched Secret Ambition. It blew me away. I've never realized how much Jesus actually went through for me. Thank you. Love, Sarah. For 14 years old, I really knew what was up. I'm going to read the uh, September 1st. Dear God, yes, I know. It's been quite a while since I've written. I love how 21 days was like too long. I haven't written in a diary in like 20 years. I guess I need to apologize to God. Um, Quite a lot has happened. When I got back from Ridgecrest, which was the name of the summer camp, I made a decision. I want to serve you, Lord. I want my career to be something that is oriented in the Christian field. Money does not matter to me. At Ridgecrest, I experienced the great power of prayer. I saw at least 20 prayers answered directly at Ridgecrest. (laughs) What were they? <laughs> Dear God, I pray that we get to have French toast for breakfast tomorrow. Like, what were the prayers that 20? That's a lot. <clears throat> Especially amazing to me. I never really focused on you at Ridgecrest. I told this to my youth group and we prayed. The next day, I had changed. Wow. 
That night, we had a great group devotions. Everyone was crying. Uh, anything that involved crying to me just was like so spiritual. I was like, oh my God, a boy in my youth group cried. That's the work of Christ. <laughs> no, it's your fucking hormones, dude. Um, no, I look, I'm making fun of it, but youth group was amazing. I mean, it taught me how to share, how to be open, how to express myself, how to accept others that were different than me. There was a lot of really, really good values that I got out of church. <laughs> we haven't had youth group lately, so we haven't had a chance to start out new or fresh, but I hope that this will happen. Well, I've got to get some sleep. I love you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. <laughs> brought back the Z. Praise the Lord. I honestly think I knew I was going to be a comedian deep down somehow unconsciously. And I knew that I would, I was like writing funny things in here. So that years from now, it was like, I was winking to myself <laughs> in the future, but let's go back on this one thing real quick. How I said, I want to serve you, Lord. I want my career to be something that is oriented in the Christian field. Money does not matter to me. First of all, what is the Christian field? Does that mean I wanted to be a preacher or like a missionary or I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but I find it funny that I, that some people would look at this and go, wow, you really didn't follow that. You're, you went into the least Christian field possible. Hollywood, evil Hollywood, entertainment elitist, Hollywood hypocrites. You are of the devil. That's what, that is truly, like, in America 1, like, towards the end, uh, it was around 2018, people were so fucking mad at Hollywood. They were like, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, they were just like, you guys are fucking all fucking fiends. Like, as if sexual harassment and assault wasn't happening rampantly in every single corner of society forever. Like... I just, there was this one dude, I had this, um, uh, Twitter list, um, that I used to follow called shitty, I called it shitty Christians. It was just a private little list. Nobody could see that I had it and I would go check it. And it was a bunch of accounts of people who were sort of Christian conservative bloggers. Um, because around that time when Trump was elected, I was so shocked by how cruel and hostile the far Christian right had become. Because as you can see from my diary, that's where I came from. That's where what I grew up in. And to see how so many people that I grew up with had become so different than me. I mean, could not be more far apart from me on the political spectrum. And it was shocking to me. I mean, maybe it shouldn't have been that shocking. It was disturbing. It was upsetting. And so I started following a bunch of them um, on this list on Twitter to just try to understand, you know, try to be like, where are they coming from? And I wouldn't follow really intensely racist or like inflammatory account. Like, you're, you know, I was, there were some during that time that were kind of branding themselves as I'm reasonable. You know, I'm one of the reasonable ones. I don't support Trump, but I'm still a super far right Christian or whatever. And I just kind of mixed it up and read them. And it was hate reading, to be honest. It was, I would read it and I'd get incredibly mad. And sometimes I'd comment and sometimes I would just absorb it. But there was one particular blogger, his name was Matt Walsh, which is really upsetting because there was a, 
Um, there's a another Matt Walsh, a, he- a comedy hero of mine, one of the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade, is named Matt Walsh. And he's very funny, and he's um, in a bunch of TV shows. He's, he's amazing. He was amazing. Um, but then there was this other Matt Walsh, and he was like this dud Christian blogger guy who said the truly the stupidest shit. I mean... He was the perfect example of what was wrong with America One towards the end and what brought us to the end of this, which was this sort of oversimplified, purposely, willfully ignorant, divisive commentary that was just impossible to argue with because he was just, you know, people would correct him all the time. They'd be like, dude, your facts are wrong. Dude, that's not correct. And he would just ignore it. He would never admit he was wrong. He would never, ugh. I don't even want to, I don't, I don't, look, Twitter's gone. Thank God. I don't, I can't even tell you some of the stuff he would say. Anyway, um, I'm so mad right now. I can't even, oh, he was one of the main guys who would be like, Hollywood is a bunch of hypocrites. Even one time I remember this, he said, the women in Hollywood are worse than the men. And this is in the context of the Me Too movement. And he was kind of implying that the women, and this is a sentiment you saw a lot back of back then, which was that the women um, are somehow worse than the actual rapists or sexual assaulter or harasser. That somehow they're worse for being complicit. Like a lot of people were saying, oh, here's a picture of so-and-so with Harvey Weinstein. You didn't have a problem with them then. You knew. Everybody knew. You know, and it's like, no, everyone didn't know. And also, even if you heard a rumor, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, I, I'd heard rumors about Louis C.K., I totally had heard rumors about him, but none of them were firsthand. I didn't know even who they were about. What was I supposed to do? Go to the New York Times and be like, I heard a rumor. Like me, in my position, what was I? I mean, there's a reason why these, why it's hard to stand up against a powerful man. They're powerful. They have, and it's not just them. They have a whole web of people that, that are holding them up who maybe, maybe they've heard the rumor and they're denying it. Maybe they've never heard the rumor. Whatever it is, there's a million different reasons why you wouldn't come forward. And just because I had heard a rumor about Louis C.K. doesn't, and I didn't say anything on, in a public platform ahead of time doesn't mean that I am worse than him. He did it. He's the one that took his dick out. He is responsible. And to judge women for how they come forward or if they come forward is such bullshit. Anyway, I... This is two weeks in a row now that I'm going off on Me Too. But it was just such a significant part of our lives, you know? And um, it was a really big turning point. Um, I mean, after that, as I've mentioned, things changed. Hollywood was all women after that. They weren't, you, you were lucky if you could get a spot at the comedy store if you were a dude. I mean, their lineups used to be about 18 men per two women. You know, that's a great ratio. Um, and after the Me Too movement, it was, you were lucky if you got the, the 2 a.m. spot on a Monday, if you were a dude, it was just all women in there. We just, we, it was great. We took over, you know, they really let us have all the opportunities after that. It was so awesome. Anyway, um, where was I? Okay. Uh, I was reading my diary, Christian... Matt Walsh, Ugh, I can't even, I don't even want to think about him ever again, but yet here he is still a thorn in my side all these years later. Man, I wonder whatever happened to his kids. If you've ever read him, his stuff, you know 
that he has some shit coming. You know, you know he had shit coming his way. Like, he'd always say shit that would be like, ladies, if you respect yourself, you would never have sex before marriage. He didn't believe in transgenderism. You know, he didn't believe it was real. He was very cruel. He was very anti-gay. You know, he just, he was just very hateful, a very hateful person. And I always wanted to tweet at him like, dude, what happens when your daughter comes to you and says, dad, I'm gay. Dad, uh, I'm pregnant. Um, dad, I was raped. I mean, like this man, I, I don't know. I mean, at some point chickens come home to roost, bitch. So anyway, I am on a tangent. The point is, is that, um, oh, I was saying that Hollywood. So in my diary, I was saying, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go into a Christian field. And then I ended up in the least Christian field possible, which I think is a bullshit assumption. You know, Hollywood is a huge, huge industry. And it's not just the celebrities. It's it's the crew. It's the staff of um, back office. It's accounting. It's it's physical labor. It's it's um, employees. You know, cleaning people. Um, it 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 is a huge industry. It it's one of America's biggest exports. If it's not our biggest export, I don't know the the remember the science on that. But Hollywood was gigantic, and it wasn't just the celebrities. In fact, they were the smallest portion of it. You know. Um, and for people to go, oh, Hollywood elites, Hollywood douchebags, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, it's, it's more than that. And hardworking, all of them are hardworking, even the celebrities. I mean, yeah, I actually do know some very lazy piece of shit celebrities who are very entitled and need to be take, needed to be taken down. Um, and I did everything I could in my power to do that, of course. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I didn't. I would never do that. I mean, maybe I'd wish it. My point is, is that... Let's, let's actually go back to the text. Guys, open your Bibles to my diary. Uh, praise the Lord. Okay, so I said, I want to serve you, Lord. I want my career to be something that is oriented in the Christian field. Money does not matter to me. Now, I don't know if I went so far off of that, because making people laugh, uh, expressing yourself, is one of the most godly and sacred things you can do channeling your light. Now, I know that sounds new agey, but just being a true, your true authentic self and sharing that with the world, there is something divine about that. And in a way, that was my gift and that's what I gave to the world, you know? So in a way, I was serving the Lord, whatever the Lord might be. Money clearly did not matter to me because if it did, I would not have entered the comedy business. Are you fucking serious? The first time I got paid to do stand-up was like 10 years in. <laughs> no, that took me a long time. No, I, mean, I think it was a little earlier than that, maybe seven years in. And because when you're first starting out, you do everything for free. You have to put so much up front. It's just such a huge investment because you can't make money for so long, especially if it's just stand-up. Holy shit. Making money as a stand-up is such a hard thing to achieve. I used to get in fights with people on Twitter and whenever, you know, sometimes when I'd say something feminist or something liberal, it would get picked up by um, the sort of alt-right bros and they'd start attacking me. And it was always usually, I, it was something funny I was trying to say or just not even funny because funny to me, Twitter, I was never very funny on Twitter. I was funny on stage. That's where I was the most funny or in videos that I made or something I had written. It was never 
short tweets. That that was not my strong point. Some people were very funny on Twitter. Some people were amazing at it. Uh, that was not my favorite medium. So I'd say something snarky, something humorous. I didn't actually think it was hilarious. I was just tweeting. And then they go, you're not funny. For a comedian, you're not very funny. Oh, you must not be a successful comedian because you're not very funny. And it's like, my favorite way to respond was just to go, yes, I am. No, but I am funny. Oh, no, but I am successful. And it would drive them fucking bananas. They couldn't handle it. They'd be like, well, no, you're not. And I'm like, no, but I am. Oh, my God, you sound so desperate. Just stop. No, but I want you to like me. Oh, my God, she's clearly failing. She obviously lives at home with her mom. You know, I'm like, my mom's dead. You know, I just would say the most true <laughs> thing possible in the most plain tone I could just to fuck with them. And they didn't know I was fucking with them. And then if I pointed out, hey, I'm fucking with you, they go, no, we're fucking with you. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, whatever you say. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. They, and then it would always go around to, well, you must not be very successful. Uh, you must not make a lot of money. And I would always be like, you would be so mad if you knew how much money I made. Now, that was at a point where I had been doing comedy for 15 years. And yeah, I mean, look, I probably deserved to make more money at that time. But in my mind, because you put so much, so many years in where you don't make a dime, that when you then get paid like more than $10 to do anything, you're like, oh my God, this is so much money. I'm like getting this, I'm like ripping these people off. But when you even it out over the, you know, decades that you've been doing it, it really isn't that much. So you have to, so anyway, my point is stand up with something that you, to just purely being paid to do stand up. Most comedians I know have to supplement their income from the road with writing jobs, uh, acting, you know, whatever other jobs you would get as a comedian, hosting things, selling shows, books, you know, all those other things purely making money off stand-up um, to make a lot, you do have to kind of be in a more famous, well-known position to get there um, where you're making a shit ton of money on stand-up. Um, but, you know, I, I got myself, um, you know, I was able to start making pretty good money at stand-up because I got into colleges and performing at colleges, and that's a nice little niche, lucrative way to make money as a stand-up. So everybody d did it differently, you know? Um so, but my point is, is that clearly money did not matter to me because if you're in it for the money, you, you really should be doing something else with your career, something a little more stable that you know makes a lot of money. Go work on Wall Street, go, go work in advertising, go work uh, as a lawyer or a doctor or something else. I mean, but because if you're trying to get into comedy just for the money, you are going to be... Uh, very disappointed <laughs> for a long time. Um, so anyway, in a way, this journal interview from 1992 did end up coming true. Um, you know, now I just perform for the frogs, and that's fun. The cicadas, when they're out, crickets, birds. You see a deer once in a while. You smell a skunk. I don't like to see the skunks. I literally got, okay. We're great. We're transitioning into what's happening in the cabinet segment. Um, last night I was literally woken up by the smell. Have you ever been woken up by a smell? I have been woken up by a smell. One smell only. Skunk. Skunk is such a strong smell that it will wake me up out of a deep sleep. Three o'clock in the morning, waking up, and you're like, what the fuck is that? And you're, oh shit, it's a skunk. He must have sprayed right outside the, the house. Anyway, 
could do with less skunks. As long as they don't burrow and nest under the cabin, I'm good. Back in America One, my sister lived in uh, uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. At one point, she had a family of skunks living under her house. Like, they had dug down deep and, like, built a little burrow for themselves. And it was so hard to get rid of them. Their whole house smelled like skunks for, like, months on end. They had to dig... Uh, like a foundation, like put chicken wire deep into the ground, like six feet deep, because they burrowed underground. It, you don't need a fence, really. You need a, an underground fence around your house to get them out. It was very, it was a long process, and I I felt bad for her because her whole house smelled like a like a weed factory gone bad. Like a that's what I always find weed and skunk smell very similar. Smelled very similar. I I don't I don't partake. Uh, Never really did it for me. I'm more of an alcohol person, but I've tried to cut back. Speaking of cutting back, um, I'm you know it's hard to stay healthy when you're living alone because you're just like who fucking cares, you know? Nobody can see me. Um, I can live large and do whatever I want, but you know you want to have energy, you want to feel good, you want to feel like your bones are aren't rubbing up and, and brittle. You want lubricated skeleton, you know, to get out there and do your cabin stuff. Um, so I started this new thing. I remember back in America one, there was this trendy thing happening called intermittent fasting. And I I don't know if it's trendy or if it was a real thing, but it worked for me back then. So what I'm doing is called intermittent fasting and, uh, there's different ways to do it, but what are you trying to do is to get your body regularly into a state of fasting, almost a state of starvation, like mini starvation, And what it does is it stimulates your brain, blood flow to the brain. You know, um, anytime you can change up the blood in your brain apparently is very good for you. Um, Prevents Alzheimer's and other things and, you know, improves function. So I, the way I do it is I only eat eight, eight hours a day. I eat from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now that might sound fine, but it's actually pretty challenging because, uh, Normally, I would eat right when I get out of bed in the morning, you know, 7.30 a.m., 8 a.m. So that's a few hours there in the morning where I can't eat. And then at night, you have to be a grandma and eat dinner at 5 p.m. And that's kind of lame, but you stop eating at 6, and, you know, you're dealing with hunger. And I've never, you know, I've never really dealt with hunger before, thank God. Um, but I was never much of a dieter, you know, I never understood constricting calories and things like that. And so doing this was a way to kind of teach myself how to be hungry for a little while and know that I'm going to be okay. And actually the sort of, uh, bad attitude that you get when you're hungry, hangry was the term, it was a very cool term, a buzzword back in the day. Um, yeah, you get that a little bit at first, but then you get used to it and you can work out when you're when, on an empty stomach. You can do all kinds of things. It's a little harder for me to be creative on an empty stomach, but I love the intermittent fasting. Um, really, it's been working for me. I don't know if I've lost any weight. I don't have a scale uh, out here in the woods, but uh, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm, I'm trimming up. Um, you know what they say, you, you make abs in the kitchen, you know? That's what they used to say at CrossFit. You know, you make abs in the kitchen. That means, what that means is that you're not going to get abs from doing exercise. You know, you're not going to get a six-pack, okay? You can get strong, 
but you're always going to have a little layer of fat over that six-pack. There's a little six-pack hidden underneath your, your fat. Everybody is a bodybuilder on the inside. They just have a little layer of fat around you. Uh, that's not true. You actually do have to build muscle. But um, I learned that in America One when I was getting really into CrossFit. I mean, at one point I was deadlifting, you know, 300 pounds. Um, <laughs> really, truly, I was. Uh, very strong beast. Um, but anyway, you make abs in the kitchen, you know, because you have to actually lose a significant amount of body fat so that we can see that sweet, sweet six pack. In fact, I would say for some people, you make abs out of the kitchen in that you stay out of the kitchen and you just don't eat. That's, that's pretty much the plan that, um, I think a lot of people follow where you just constrict your diet to the point where you're starving and that's a really sad thing that, you know, because I like a little bit of a belly. Show me your pudge. It's adorable. I want to see it, okay? Even if it's huge. I love it. Everybody is beautiful. Back when Instagram was a thing, I used to follow all kinds of different body shapes, you know? I would follow... I'm talking about them like they're not human beings. I would follow round ones. <laughs> I would follow, that's fucked up. No, I would follow different women, you know, because Instagram had a lot of fitness models, you know, and there was a lot of thinspo, which is like short for thinspiration. And like that I found were dangerous. I liked following plus size models and like, you know, a whole variety of people just because I liked exposing my eyes to different bodies and different different shapes, different colors, you know, because there's research that showed that the more exposure you have to different body types and different types of people visually, the more you start to change your opinion and go, oh, that is beautiful. Your beauty standards change. So I was actively trying to do that because I realized my own bias had been drilled into me through the magazines. And, you know, it really hit me when I um, got my TV show back in America One, Nikki and Sarah Live, man. It was my fir first of many TV shows, by the way. First of many, 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 many countless award-winning TV shows. Um, but Nikki and Sarah Live was such a wonderful experience. But one of the first things that shocked me was that when I looked on camera, I would go, wow, I got chubby. You know, like I got, like, my face looks fat. You know, not fat, okay? I've never been fat. I don't want to use incorrect terms. But it looked bigger than I had realized. And what I realized was, is that I had been looking at women on TV for, for countless years that were so unbelievably thin that that was what I thought I looked like. Because I was thin in real life, you know, uh, tall, thin, you know, um, and what I believe to be on the thin side. And then I get on TV and I see myself and I went, whoa, I look big. And then I realized it wasn't me that was big. It was that this whole time I've been looking at women who are fucking tiny, absolutely tiny. Now, maybe they're naturally tiny or maybe they work really hard to be tiny or maybe they're unhealthily tiny. Either way, they're tiny. And it was a big wake-up call for me. And I really started to realize my own bias against beauty standards. I mean, my own bias within beauty standards. And so I really had to work my way out of that. Anyway, I'm intermittent fasting so that I will get thin again. <laughs> thin, you know, I, it, I'm doing it for the health. But I like looking in the mirror at myself and going, wow, look at that body. Damn, girl. You know? 
I like flexing my muscles in the mirror. Who amongst us? This is why I'm in the loner zone, isn't it? Isn't it? Okay, guys, that's our second episode. I don't know who we is once again, but um, um, if you're listening out there, somehow you got it, somehow you found it on my cloud, um, thank you. And um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back into the kitchen over there, and I'm going to make myself some abs. Good night.